Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. President Obama is eager to work with the new Republican Congress. U.S. stocks advance on election results and a strong ADP employment report. And European stocks rebound from a two-day slide as Marks & Spencer and Netixis rally. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll talk about all of these stories with guest host Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. And Voice of America reporter Ira Melman will also give us an earnings report. Tim Culpin of Bloomberg will join us to discuss mainland smartphone maker Xiaomi and its new M2 phone. And Jeff Williamson of the California State Trade and Export Promotion Board will talk with us about wine picks from the Napa and Sonoma regions. So lots to talk about this morning. The Republicans have taken control of the Senate following the U.S. midterm elections. President Barack Obama appears eager to work with Congress to be productive. I'm eager to work with the new Congress to make the next two years as productive as possible. I'm committed to making sure that I measure ideas, not by whether they are from Democrats or Republicans, but whether they work for the American people. And that's not to say that we won't disagree over some issues that we're passionate about. We will. Congress will pass some bills I cannot sign. I'm pretty sure I'll take some actions that some in Congress will not like. That's natural. That's how our democracy works. But we can surely find ways to work together on issues where there's broad agreement among the American people. Gina Martin-Adams, an equity strategist at Wells Fargo Securities, is optimistic about the equity markets post-midterm elections. I think the market will, in the short term at least, trade higher on the prospects for potential corporate tax reform as kind of the biggest issue I would suspect to impact equity markets, but also potential reform of health care legislation. Mm -hmm. um, you've probably got better prospects for defense spending. I mean, it's tough to say this early in the game, right? And there are three branches of government. They've all got to work together. So especially the executive and the legislative branch, I think we're going to be set up for some pretty big battles in the next couple of years. Nonetheless, generally business is probably a little bit more optimistic. The U.S. dollar held gains near a seven-year high versus the yen. Currently, it buys you 114 yen. And this is after private payrolls data added optimism for the U.S. economy. ADP has re reported that the private payrolls rose by 230,000 in October, following a revised 225,000 increase in September. AP's David Melendy has the details. That's the most in four months and a sign that businesses are still willing to hire despite signs of slowing growth overseas. Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi says the ADP report continues an encouraging trend. Job growth is strong. I'd say very strong. He says the new jobs were again broad-based across industries and company sizes. And he says all signs point to that continuing, bringing the economy to full employment within a couple of years. Zandi says the next step in the labor market recovery is wage growth. Wage growth has been very tepid uh, since the recovery began. But he says it seems to be starting to percolate higher now. Peter, you say that uh, this really is the big story. And by that, you are talking about the U.S versus the yen. Yes, right? I mean, US you know, there's, it's, a, it's a, really a, a question of the U.S. outperforming the rest of the world at the moment. All the economic data that we see coming out is confirming that the Eurozone is likely to slip into recession again. Japan, we know about the problems there. But the, the U.S. economy has been slowly repairing quarter by quarter since the financial crisis. Um, and elsewhere, we have the Bank of Japan desperately trying to pull, um, you know, the economy, you know, up by its coattails.
So U.S. stocks rose overnight with the Dow advancing to a record. This is, of course, after the Republican Party took control of the Senate in the midterm elections. And this report on the labor market was stronger than anticipated. The Dow closed 100 points higher at 17,484. The S&P 500 also gained more than a half percent to end at 2023, though the Nasdaq fell two points to 4,620. But what about the plunging price of oil? Now, is this likely to rattle things? BP Capital's founder, chairman and CEO T. Boone Pickens says that he doesn't necessarily expect the West Texas index to drop below $70 a barrel. You're selling oil in uh, the Permian Basin uh, in West Texas for $72. You're selling oil in the Bakken up in North Dakota for $69 a barrel. Uh, you're selling uh, Brent North Sea at $82 a barrel. How much lower can you go? You could go down to, I don't think you'll go down to $70, but you could get down in the 70s. But you've got a very important OPEC meeting coming up in uh, uh, this month, I think on the 27th of November. You'll find out there if they're going to cut supply and uh, to get price up. You know, give it a chance. This has only been going on for 30 days. So uh, the the world hadn't changed. But uh, we'll see how it comes out because OPEC has got to have uh, a better price for oil than $80 a barrel. Peter, analysts say that the price of oil is related to equity markets in the long term. What do you think? Well, historically, there's never been a strong correlation between the performance of equity markets and the and the oil price. But but there's a bigger story here, and that is, you know, this is happening in in, in the overall picture of collapsing commodities everywhere. We're seeing gold and silver um, plummet. We're seeing industrial commodities um, plummet because of oversupply issues. And this again is part of outside of the U.S. the weak global economy um, sort of story. So um, you know, back to your sort of dismal mantra then of a few weeks ago. <laughs> Do you think we've actually hit the bottom? I mean, I, I know you said that that was the top, but have we hit the bottom? Well, I, I think we're still grinding out a top here. I mean, you know, what, what we've seen this week is once again, the Bank of Japan, you know, go all in this time. And, and it's just showing that these markets are very, very dependent. In fact, almost solely dependent at the moment on stimulus from the central banks. We're waiting tomorrow now to see what the ECB um, or later today, what the ECB will do. But it, it's really really the, the actions of the central bank that have pumped up certain asset classes, including um, equity markets. And, you know, at some point, people are going to start to question how effective is this going to be and start to question what exactly are the central banks um, sort of doing. But uh, at the moment, as long as, you know, the Bank of Japan is there pumping money into the markets, as we've seen with the Nikkei, you know, it can go up further. So this is, you know, really reminding me of Mark Farber's comments from the other day when he said, you know, what's happening in Japan? It's just one big Ponzi scheme and everything is going to shake out. You agree? Yeah, he's absolutely right. I mean, in many ways, it's like a great big carry trade. I mean, what the Bank of Japan is doing is it's forcing interest rates into negative territory, which is robbing people who are savers and pensioners. And there are a lot of um, pensioners in Japan because of the demographics in order to try and protect, um, you know, bondholders. And Japanese debt is over, public debt is over 700% of GDP. 
it spends all of its tax revenues on servicing that debt and social security. So it has to plug the, de- the gap. And really what it's doing is every bond now that the government issues, the Bank of Japan buys. Peter, there is just no two ways about it. You and Mark Faber, you're both all about the base. Because you know I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, base, base. So Tesla Motors has been the darling of Wall Street over the past 18 months as the Elon Musk-led company has defied critics, building an electric car company that seems poised to last. Well, let's bring in Ira Melman of The Voice of America. Good morning, Ira. Good morning to you. Or I should probably say good evening where you are. You're joining us from New York. Uh, that is correct. Actually, Washington, D.C., and uh, yeah, it is uh, just about uh, 12 minutes past 7 o'clock here. Okay, Ira, can you so, bring us I, up to date on Tesla's earnings released today? By all, by all means. They came out after the closing bell on this uh, Tuesday evening still here in the east coast of the United States, and they beat, did Tesla, analyst expectations, an adjusted profit of two cents a share in the third quarter, and that beat the analyst expectations. That expectation was just about a break-even point. And on Wall Street, as in most markets, as you know, you beat expectations, you're in pretty good shape. However, there's some questions here. Just take a look at some of the numbers here. Um, Tesla had been trading about $260 a share at the start of October. Um, it closed on uh, Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. I should uh, counter what I just said earlier. It uh, closed at 230 $39.97 a share, and that was down 3.33% for the day. Leading up to that, some questions as to whether or not the future of Tesla is as bright as either Elon Musk or a lot of uh, pro-Tesla people believe it is. And one of the reasons is what you were just talking about, and that is the price of fuel, the price of oil. The price of a gallon of gasoline, petrol, here in the United States, um, has fallen below the $3 a gallon mark. And Tesla, as you might know, being an all-electric automobile, uh, would probably be served well by higher gasoline petrol prices because people don't have to fill up their tanks so that is just one of the questions another big question that's being asked is how is tesla going to do in the chinese market the chinese market has become the number one auto purchasing uh, market in the world surpassing the united states Um, Fewer people uh, rely on gasoline-powered automobiles there, and Tesla believes in uh, building out a charging station and network throughout the entire country uh, that China is the market, and they really want to enter the uh, market and have done so in the past year, six months or so, and uh, so far so good. So we'll see what happens with Tesla. Okay, Ira, it's, it's no doubt that Tesla is hotter than ever, but certainly the company is also reported to have some growing pains. I think, Peter, you've got, uh, you've got some ideas on that, right? Yeah, but, I mean, if you look deep, deeper into the financials and take out all the adjustments, sort of EPF, EPS, GAP EPS was a loss of 60 cents a share, and it's, it's burning through a lot of cash, isn't it, at the moment? It had a record um, cash burn this quarter. Are, are there some concerns about, about that going forward, about the state of its uh, its balance sheet? Yeah, by all means, uh, especially when you look at uh, some 
of uh, the uh, the numbers that are coming through, um, especially uh, as, as far as what is going to happen in China. They are spending a lot of money, and some of the accounting that you see shows that Tesla is losing a lot of money. Now, Elon Musk and the people in the California-based company say that is okay. That is what they expected, and that's what they are prepared to do, especially to enter that Chinese market. And I think that they are viewing that uh, as the panacea for just about everything, and uh, their future lies, I believe, not only in the United States, but especially in China. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Ira Melman, a reporter for The Voice of America, joining us from Washington, D.C. Well, Tesla shares were up nearly 5% at $241.55 in aftermarket trading. Uh, that's after closing on Wednesday at $230.97 per share. Also in earnings news, Qualcomm did not do so well. Though fourth quarter revenue was up from a year ago, it missed analysts' es- earni- um, earnings and revenue estimates. The company warned that an antitrust investigation and problems collecting royalties could harm its business in China next year. It also disclosed new regulatory investigations in the United States and Europe. In currencies, one euro buys you 1.24 US dollars and one, point, uh, one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 37 cents. The Nikkei is open currently. It is up uh, three tenths of a percent to 17,002. Australia's ASX is also open and it is down just slightly to 5,491. And Seoul's Kospi is also open and up just slightly to 1,932. Well, we'll be back to look at more about uh, uh, smartphone maker Xiaomi. That is right after this message. When buying a first-hand residential property, always find out about a mortgage loan first before signing the preliminary agreement. Don't accept a loan from an estate agent to pay the deposit. If you don't sign the agreement within five working days after signing the preliminary agreement, you'll forfeit your deposit, which is equivalent to 5% of the purchase price. The sales of first-hand residential properties authority reminds you, think before signing smart first-hand home buying. Smartphone maker Xiaomi has been caught up in a war of words with Apple over allegations of copycat design. Chris Oliver reports. Over to you, Chris. Last month, Apple's head of design, Johnny Ive, laid out some harsh words for Xiaomi. That's the Beijing-based smartphone maker. Ive said he wasn't flattered, quote, by design similarities between Xiaomi handsets and the iPhone. He even accused the company of being lazy and said that there had been theft, although he didn't elaborate on what he meant. In response, Xiaomi's global vice president, Hugo Barra, dismissed the accusations as sensationalist. Now, I, uh, I followed up the story with Bloomberg's technology reporter, Tim Culpin, in Taipei about the conflict. Well, I can understand Johnny Ive's uh, frustration and concern. He has a very small team of, of only about 16 people across the whole product range, and they do you know, slave for, away for years in their studio in Cupertino to come up with great designs that you know, they're inspired by and hope will inspire their customers. Hugo Barrow of Xiaomi also has an interesting point that everyone's kind of 
uh, copying and, and learning and extending from what everyone else is doing. He, in fact, uh, says that he feels that uh, Apple has design, uh, taken some design ideas from HTC, the Taiwanese manufacturer that's got their, uh, their M8 phone and uh, that series which uses metal uh, design and metal casings. And so Hugo Barra's uh, kind of riposte to Johnny Ive is that that's the way design works. We're all coming up with ideas and we're all learning and we're all inspired by each other. Tensions between the two companies picked up uh, really uh, only a few months ago, and that's when Xiaomi launched its latest handset called the MI4. The device runs on the Android operating system and is only available in some parts of Asia, obviously through China and uh, parts of Hong Kong and uh, other sort of greater China areas. Uh, A rollout for India is slated next year. There has been quite a few Xiaomi phones that look a little bit like others. Uh, you know, the M4, the, the Mi 4, also, uh, you know, people have put up on, on websites comparing the Mi 4 with, with the iPhone as well. But you put, say, a Samsung next to a Sony, uh, next to a Huawei, next to an HTC, you'll also find a lot of similarities. Uh, a lot of people question, well, is it a coincidence or is that just a natural evolution of phones? Uh, I think that those who would say there's a certain amount of copycat going on between uh, Xiaomi and Apple have have a reasonable basis for that opinion. There is certainly a lot of similarities between the two, but there's only so much copycat you can do. And Xiaomi's also, you know, gone ahead and put some of their own design uh, ideas into some of their products as well. Xiaomi is no small player to the smartphone market. Uh, In spite of just launching in 2010, the company has grown to become the number one smartphone brand in China, and depending on who you talk to, number three or four on a global basis. Uh, That's astonishing for a company, which uh, last year only had a valuation of about $10 but there's some uh, estimates in the market that it's worth around $40 now, although it's privately held. We don't have a market cap for that company. Xiaomi's profit margins are less than Apple's, but its phones are much cheaper, which is why they're selling so quickly and gaining market share. Uh, For people who study the company, the the interesting thing is that it sells its phones just above cost, and instead it makes its money on software. Well, I think you'll probably find that Apple has higher margins in the smartphone business of anybody simply because they get a product that costs, you know, about $200 to put together and they sell it for $600. So, uh, yes, you then have to take out your marketing costs and your distribution costs and all of that. But at the end of the day, uh, the financials are there for, for Apple. Uh, and you can see they've got very large margins, Xiaomi being uh, private, the financials are not as available. Uh, but at the end of the day, Xiaomi sells those products a lot cheaper. Uh, their margins for every uh, $100 that they uh, sell a phone for, they're, they're only making a few few dollars out of that. And, and they've admitted that, and they're happy with that. That's something that uh, Vice President Hugo Barra has said very... Xiaomi's business model has worked well in China, but the big challenge will be to take it global. Uh, one reason that's a, that's a headwind for the company is that if you make your money out of software and not on hardware, well, when you hit the global market, somehow that dynamic doesn't work anymore. Xiaomi is going to have to expand overseas at some point. Uh, of course, the Chinese market with 1.3 billion uh, population, there's a lot of room to move. There's a lot of room to expand. Uh, but Xiaomi uh, does seem to have a certain amount of uh, global aspiration, but it's not easy to go overseas. Uh, Chinese companies that have tried to go overseas before haven't done that well. Lenovo's managed to do it by buying uh, you know, IBM's assets all those years ago and, and have now gone ahead and bought Motorola, uh, the, the phone business 
Nexus and Motorola. Uh, I don't think that uh, Apple will be quaking in its boots right now. Uh, they will certainly be uh, very mindful. But again, they're in very different uh, product categories, uh, very different price points. So if you're holding Apple stock, should you sell it uh, in face of the challenge from Xiaomi? Well, it's a big question, but uh, for analysts looking at the China market, the belief is that affluent consumers, those are the ones that are most sought out by Apple, are not really likely to defect to Xiaomi handsets anytime soon. Xiaomi is going to have to expand overseas at some point. Uh, Of course, the Chinese market with 1.3 billion uh, population there's a lot of room. All right. Sorry, it looks like we had a technical glitch there. That's the uh, final clip of the, of the, of the series. Uh, in, in that last clip, uh, Tim Culpin goes on to explain that really China's affluent consumers uh, are not going to be tempted over to Xiaomi just because of the, the lower price point, but rather the phone is kind of a status symbol in, in China and should, uh, Apple should continue to do fairly well there. Thank you, Chris. The time is now 8.23 a.m. and California wines from the Napa and Sonoma regions are being promoted as high-quality contenders that can go head-to-head with offerings from the world's most famous regions. Let's bring on Jeff Williamson, who is the director of the California State Trade and Export Promotion. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, Good morning. So, Jeff, California wines, uh, clearly some of my favorites, and I know that Peter has a soft spot for them as well, so I'm going to speak on his behalf. You can speak, Peter. (laughs) Um, What are we looking at? Uh, You know, what are your top uh, California wine picks uh, this year? Well, I don't really have any top picks for myself, um, but uh, I think when you start looking at the 2014 Uh, Vintage and even last year's vintage, we're really looking at very, very strong wines, um, probably some of the best vintages in years. So you can take your pick, whether you like a Zinfandel, a Pinot, or a Cabernet. Uh, There's a whole bunch of really good wines out there because we have just really fantastic conditions over the past couple of years. Now, are you talking specifically from a taste uh, and, and preferences point of view, or are you talking from a wine investment point of view? I think uh, both, because uh, what's happened is, uh, as you know, we have a very serious situation in California with the drought, uh, where that's affecting uh, a number of crops uh, adversely, but not wine. Actually, the drought combined with uh, really warm temperatures has produced a fruit that is very concentrated, and so the, the wines are much more flavorful. Um, and uh, I think that these conditions are, are extremely rare in, in our case. So that's interesting. The drought is not a good thing in general, but it might be a good thing for wine production. Yes. In fact, the, um, when the vines are put under a little bit of stress, they tend to, to focus their uh, resources of, of the plant on the fruit itself because it wants to um, uh, regenerate. So the uh, the the fruit is getting very concentrated, very very uh, concentrated flavor. The, the berries are much smaller, in fact, and um, and because of this year we had a rather early harvest because of the conditions. Uh, the early harvest helped to avoid a number of the disease conditions that, that can affect the crop. So avoided issues related to. Uh, 
uh, mold and, and other, you know, uh, sort of disease that can affect the crop. So overall, it's looking very good. Jeff, does the, does the drought situation also affect investment in that if it lowers production levels, does it ostensibly then raise prices? Well, yes. In fact, that's one of the um, issues uh, that it, the drought, once again, is not if it, it, yeah, indirectly it is, I think, an investment opportunity. The um, the tonnage and the, the yield from the crop is expected to be a little bit lower simply because the berries are smaller, so the tonnage is going to go down. And so that's creating, creating a condition of scarcity as it is. There's a lot of um, very good quality small um, sort of producers in, in California. How, how can you help them sort of promote their wines here in Hong Kong, given that, you know, Hong Kong is, a, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world for, you know, for, for, for wine. What, what are your plans to help them? Well, what we do under the State Trade and Export Promotion Program is, in fact, we target small uh, small companies. I mean, our, our whole effort is based on trying to help small companies get into new markets. And in the, wine, in the case of wine, we have well over 3,500 wine companies in California. About 95% of them are very small. And many of them don't have an export department. They don't have somebody that's focused on markets overseas. So we spend a lot of time trying to educate the community, trying to uh, promote the opportunity for exporting their products and try to let them know that the growth in consumption globally really is is in these emerging markets, and they need to start thinking about it, if not now, but for the long term. So we provide incentives to get them here to market. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. That is Jeff Williamson, Director of the California State Trade and Export Promotion Board. All right, a quick look at the numbers because we're, you know, close to wrapping up the show. The Nikkei is open. It is up six-tenths of a percent to 17,036. Australia's ASX index is down just slightly to 5,491. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, uh, one-tenth of a percent to 1,900. 34. Brent crude oil is currently at $82.95 and gold is at $1,142 an ounce. Peter, so here we are almost at the close of the show, almost at the close of the week. What should we be looking out for in these next uh, couple of days? Two things. Um, later on today, the ECB policy meeting will wrap up and Draghi will speak um, after that. So the question on anyone, everyone's mind is, will the ECB follow in Japan's footsteps and, and announce an expanded QE program? I suspect that they're not going to announce an outright purchase of sovereign bonds. I think that may be a step too far, particularly for Germany, but the markets are looking to see um, what actions uh, the ECB are going to take to try and uh, stave off deflation in the Eurozone. And then tomorrow in the US, we have the job numbers. Uh, we had an, an advanced peak with the ADP uh, survey yesterday. Um, so people are quite positive about that as well. So everything's looking pretty good with the ECB specifically. You know, leave us with your parting thoughts. Well, you know, the, the ECB is in a bind. Um, you know, it, it needs to do something to try and um, avert the fear of deflation. Market expectations of inflation are, are falling to record lows. Um, but it does seem to have a split amongst its board members um, and also amongst the countries in the Eurozone, particularly Germany, about what it should do next. So it's in a much tougher position to act than, say, the Bank of Japan was. All right. Well, thank you. 
thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, our Thursday co-host. And thank you to Chris Oliver, our producer for all of his hard work. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with a few light rain patches in the morning and night. Sunny periods during the day with a maximum temperature of around 25 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 85%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Ben Chia. President Obama and the new Republican leader of the U.S. Senate have promised to work together to end political gridlock in Washington. In his first comment since the Democratic Party's heavy defeat in this week's midterm elections, President Obama said he was eager to work with the new Congress to make the next two years as productive as possible, despite inevitable differences. Congress will pass some bills I cannot sign. I'm pretty sure I'll take some actions that some in Congress will not like. That's natural. That's how our democracy works. But we can surely find ways to work together on issues where there's broad agreement among the American people. The BBC's Nick Bryant looks at Mr. Obama's response to the midterm election results. The scale of the Republican victory is being widely interpreted as a repudiation of Barack Obama's leadership. But the president claimed the message from voters was for Washington as a whole to get stuff done. Having spoken by phone to the Republican leader Mitch McConnell, he's identified areas of potential agreement, international trade deals, an overhaul of the tax system, new infrastructure. But he also listed items on his own agenda, such as raising the minimum wage and pursuing immigration reform unilaterally without the support of Congress that will place him at odds with the Republicans. Myanmar's most prominent pro-democracy activist, Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, says the country's reform process has stalled over the past two years. The warning came a week before a visit to Myanmar by President Obama. The BBC's Michael Bristol.